And as we come now to our sermon text, we're continuing walking through the Gospel of Matthew, and we find ourselves in Matthew 22, verses 15 through verse 22. And you can find the scripture text in your worship bulletin. Matthew writes, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent the disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him an denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him. And went away. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, we ask that as your word is proclaimed, that you would speak your truth into the hearts of your people, that you would call them back to the gospel, to Christ. And for those who do not know you, those who are still afar off, that you would draw them through your word to the mercy and grace that can be theirs in Christ if they but come to him in faith and repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, torn loyalties can be a very difficult thing to navigate. Uh, for a few years of our lives, uh, a while ago now, Heather and the boys and I lived in Flint Township. Um, this was when the water was still good. <laughs> but we did live there for a little bit. In a, in a mission, this is when we were missionaries uh, in a missions house that a church there had while we were raising our support. And there was a store there, I think it's still in existence, um, that would sell both Michigan and Michigan State's uh, gear, and it was aptly named the Split Mitt. And uh, no doubt you've seen those flags as well that some people will hang outside of their homes uh, to show their divided loyalty, where they have Michigan State and Michigan, and there's a divide going through it. I think that's an abomination. It shouldn't exist. I mean, I was born and raised to bleed maize and blue, and uh, so to me, that, that, that flag should not exist on this earth. And if you're a Michigan State fan, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's just truth. Uh, I jest, of course, you know, but it's torn loyalties, we understand that. They, they are actually a real thing. And as Christians, as we seek to live for our King, Jesus Christ, we certainly feel the tension of that in this world. Uh, there, there's this tension between our loyalty uh, to our uh, political and ethnic and cultural and geographical kingdom where, where we reside, our, the community that we live in, the kingdom of this world, but also our new citizenship uh, in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God Almighty. 
And that leads us to ask a fundamental question then. How do I, as a citizen, first and foremost, of Christ's kingdom, of the kingdom of God, how do I, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, live in this fallen world, in the kingdom of this world? How do I seek the good of my neighbor, the good of the city in which I reside, and yet live for the glory of God, for my heavenly city, my heavenly Jerusalem, by loving him with all my heart, soul, and mind. You see, we are, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we live in the kingdom of the world. And that makes us many times feel homeless. Indeed, the scriptures talk about how God's people are in an exile here, awaiting for the return of the king to lead them into his glory. And we especially feel that when our call to follow Christ, to be obedient to his word, comes in conflict with the life we have in this world. Now, Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees and the Herodians here in our text answers those questions. And it answers them with the grace and the goodness of the gospel and the freedom it brings. And I'll tell you where we're going to go with this. I don't always give you my outline, but... I uh, tapped back to my old uh, Baptist roots and actually have uh, eyes here for you and an alliteration. So we're going to look at this in, in this incriminating question that the Pharisees bring to Christ and how that points actually to an incriminating problem that we all have. Then we'll look at Christ's incredible answer, which leads us to the invigorating life of the gospel. So... First of all, an incriminating question. We've been observing here in Matthew this back and forth battle in Jerusalem between Jesus and the religious and cultural leaders of Jerusalem. And we have seen most recently last week that Jesus threw at them three parabolic punches that exposed the evil of their hearts and how they had rejected him as their king and messiah but through that rejection he would redeem his bride the church to be a people from every tongue tribe and nation who would faithfully follow him because they've been rescued from the darkness of their sin and restored to the light of his grace and now we come to the pharisees move on this battlefield They're looking to set a trap, a snare, to capture Jesus in his own words. And we're going to see through the rest of Matthew 22 here a a series of three questions, actually, that come at Jesus by three different groups of people that all represent the worldviews and philosophies and ideals of this present world. And the first of those we find in our text this morning. So after being exposed by Jesus' parables in front of the entire crowd that was in the temple court for being false shepherds, we find the Pharisees in verse 15, they are plotting, Matthew says, to entangle him in his words, to to trap him and tie him up. Uh, They are trying to set a snare that would literally incriminate him. They would expose him to be a criminal. They want to either expose him as a Jewish zealot and thus an enemy of Rome, a criminal of Rome, or a blasphemer who broke the moral of law of God and therefore a criminal in the eyes of the Jewish people. 
And this question comes from a pair of very unlikely allies. You wouldn't normally see these two groups of people working together. The group, or the groups rather, that come together to ask Jesus this question, they're normally very much opposed to one another. They hate each other. They come from two very different worldviews. The first group, of course, is the familiar Pharisees. They send their disciples to ask Jesus this incriminating question. And I find it's interesting that Matthew notes the Pharisees have their own disciples. You see, every system of thought, every faith, every worldview has its followers, its disciples. And for these disciples... That system is very much a religion, a faith to them. And that is true of every worldview, every system, every ideology in this world. Be they political, be they spiritual, they are like a religion. They have their own liturgical system of worship, their own signs and symbols, their own means of uh, uh, showing devotion, and their own redemptive systems. And for the Pharisees, that system was their own personal interpretation of God's law, rather than what God's law actually said. For they were trying to use the law as it was never intended to produce righteousness in the heart of a person so that they might be justified in God's sight. But you see, the law was created to uh, glorify God, yes, And something that we ought to strive to follow through the Spirit, but ultimately to show us that we cannot keep it. That we need to be justified by faith alone. But the Pharisees believed that through the law, if they just enough people in Israel kept the law hard enough, then there would be this messianic golden age that would come upon Israel. uh, And by, by the sheer power of their obedience, God would bless them. The other group in our text, they're new to us. They are called the Herodians. The Herodians were devoted to the current political system of the day, that being the Roman puppet kings, the Herods, the Herodian dynasty that were established by Rome. They represented Roman control and power in the region. And through Herod and thus through Rome... The Herodians believed that the world would become a better place. They'd have this economic golden age, a great society, whereas the Pharisees asked this question from a theological and ethical approach. The the Herodians are taking a political one. And so you can see then that these two groups, they usually don't get along. They hated each other, that the Pharisees despised Roman rule. They often took the forefront of the many Jewish revolts leading up to the final destruction of Jerusalem at A.D. 70. They they viewed the Herodian dynasty as a foreign influence that defiled the land of promise. And the Herodians, of course, they were very much opposed to the Jewish patriotism of the Pharisees. They considered them fanatics, terrorists. They were in in favor of Roman rule. And so you have these two unlikely allies, like other groups throughout history that you would never think would work together, uh, Whigs and Tories, patriots and loyalists, communists and capitalists, Democrats and Republicans, Pharisees and Herodians. You just don't anticipate them working together. 
But they're actually more similar than we realize because they are united by a common cause, that being their hatred for Jesus Christ. And it is from that hatred that they ask this incriminating question. They say in verse 17, tell us, Jesus, tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And that question, of course, comes from their flattery uh, that they had just laid out, as we see in the text, that was really intended to disguise their true intent. I mean, they address Jesus as a teacher, which is a term of respect. But interestingly, in the book of Matthew, he never uses that, uh, or people in, in Matthew's gospel never use that term teacher Uh, if they are actually part of his disciples. They call him Lord. But teacher was only used by those outside of his people. They, of course, say, well, Jesus, you're you're true. And and what you say about God, you say truthfully. um, When you speak about his ways, you are speaking truth. You are no respecter of persons. You don't care what others think. You speak what is true. And, of course, This is true about Jesus. He is all of these things. The thing is, these people didn't believe a word of that. It was completely done as a means of flattery, of disguising what they were trying to do, which was trap him. The tax that they are talking about is uh, known as the poll tax. There were, of course, many taxes that Rome imposed upon the subjects of her rule. But this particular tax, while not an expensive tax or even overly oppressive, it was a potent projection of Rome's power. And the reason for that is it was levied against everyone. It didn't matter who you are. If you lived within the boundaries of the Roman Empire, from wealthy estate owners to businessmen to women and even slaves, you were required to pay this tax yearly, this poll tax. It started in 6 AD as an imposition of direct Roman rule. And as you might imagine, it was fiercely opposed. In fact, not too long before this incident In this conversation between Jesus, the Pharisees, and the Herodians, there had been a revolt. There was a revolt by a man named Judas who led an army of zealots against Rome and was put down. And the the, the cause of that was this poll tax. So the Pharisees then, they they view this tax, of course, from their theological and ethical angle. The, The coin you see, that was required to pay this tax was a special coin. It was a denarius, that was its value, which was a day's wage. It was stamped with the image of Tiberius Caesar, the emperor of the time. And on there, it also has the words written, we actually still have examples of this coin that you can look at in museums, but on it was the inscription in Latin, uh, Divi Filius, which means the son of God. This was a claim by the emperor to deity, which, of course, there was this cult of the emperor that existed within Rome. And the Pharisees, being devout Jewish men, understood that the second commandment of God's moral law, which reads, you shall not make 
for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And certainly to them, this claim to be divine by the emperor and stamping it on this image and requiring everybody to to now pay this back to him as a tax, that to them was a clear violation of God's second commandments. And so if Jesus then were to answer this question, is it lawful to pay this tax to Caesar or not? If he was to answer that in the affirmative, the Pharisees would say, aha, you have incriminated yourself against God himself. You are violating his very law. You're saying that we should worship the emperor. Now the Herodians have that political angle behind the question. As supporters of Rome, of course, they're very much in favor of this tax. It helped pay for all the Roman roads, the Roman aqueducts, law and order that uh, people enjoyed every day. And to not pay the tax to them was an act of rebellion. If Jesus then said to the people, no, don't pay the tax, it's a sin against God, then the Herodians would accuse him of being a zealot, a rebel. He would incriminate himself against the empire. And so the question seems like the perfect one. That final question, we got him this time. They're going to catch Jesus in this snare and find fault with him. It is an incriminating question. But here's the thing, the question actually doesn't incriminate Jesus. It incriminates those who asked it of him. You see, in trying to trap Jesus by asking this question about the poll tax, both the Pharisees and Herodians were trapping themselves in their own corruption, their own sinful rebellion against God. Because it shows a fundamental problem with every kingdom that is not the kingdom of God. And that is this, is that the kingdoms, the systems of this world always will try to make the kingdom of Christ appear to be evil. They will call that which is good evil and that which is evil good in an effort to rebel against God. I mean, the systems of this world do that because they just cannot accept the idea that the only way to have peace with God, the only way to be part of his kingdom is by grace alone. And the systems of this world, they promise a golden age, a better world, a time of prosperity and peace on earth. I mean, name any worldview, any political system or human philosophy, and they all promise you the same thing, that gilded age of peace and prosperity. And now they'll strongly disagree on the content of what is required to get to that period of, of, of utopia, of peace, but they all have that aim. And at their core, all those systems of the kingdom of the world, they preach a gospel of works, of things that you must do and give and perform if we are to get this gilded age. And the Pharisees, they preached the law that if you just tried hard enough, then the Messianic age would come and we'll drive out the Romans and all foreign invaders. 
And the Messiah will reign physically from Jerusalem. And the Herodians also preached a gospel of law. They said, well, if you just bow to the political system and and pay your tax and promote the power of the emperor and Rome, Rome would build for us a world of peace and prosperity, the, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And of course, that, that pattern of, of wanting to bring in this golden age through human effort continues in every political party and faith and philosophy outside the kingdom of God. We can just do enough to remake the world into this golden age. And we do it through some prescribed system of works, a works-based gospel. And even... As Christians, we're tempted to try to do the same thing. We want there to be peace on earth. After all, that's a promise of the gospel. But the trouble is, many Christians sometimes will lean upon the wrong thing to bring about the right result. And they'll they'll lean towards the view that through their political involvement or their activism, that we can just remake this world and the one where God is worshipped from every corner, and that the laws of this world will reflect the righteousness of God, and then Jesus will return and rule physically upon the earth. But that is not what the Bible teaches. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. John eighteen thirty six. And when we forget the fact that as believers, as as Christians, we belong to a spiritual kingdom that only becomes a physical kingdom once our king physically returns, well, we find that the incriminating question of the Pharisees and the Herodians reveals to us an incriminating problem. And the problem is this, is that it's easy, even as believers, It is far too easy to be more concerned with our politics and our personal ethics than our actual duty to God. Now, there's a a caveat in order here. Certainly, how we think and act politically and how we behave ethically ought to flow from our faith in Christ. It ought to be driven and directed by the gospel. We ought to rely on God's wisdom and how we interact with society. We are, after all, according to the Apostle Paul, not slaves to our sin, not slaves to the world, but slaves to God in Christ. And so the way we interact with life in this world, where we spend our time as exiles, is to be governed by our identity in Christ. Ethics, when they are in line and flowing from God's revealed world, uh, word, they are a beautiful thing. And our political activities ought to match our faith in Christ and our trust in God's holy word. However, when we allow those things to become the primary concern of our lives and the primary means of bringing Christ's kingdom into this world, We're allowing the demands of the kingdoms of this world, even though they might be, uh, have a tinge of truth to them and may be good, we're allowing them to replace our primary duty to God. And it's so tempting to do that because we want a better world. We want a better life. 
like the Pharisees and the Herodians, the, the competing kingdoms of this world, they call and demand so much of us. They want us to sacrifice and sacrifice to their system. They feed us their own liturgies of worship, of, of self-effort and human achievement. And they demand our, our fealty, our faithfulness, through prescribed acts of love to the system that they have created. Work harder, do more, march with us, unite to our cause, vote for our candidates, preach our agenda. And when that happens, when we allow our political and social views to take precedence over our duty to God, we show ourselves to be in rebellion to God, to once again be breaking his law, to worship him, to have him as our king in the place of highest honor. Now, again, sometimes the demands and and deeds that the systems of the world ask for, they, they are not evil of themselves. Sometimes they call for good things, for positive change in the world. Sometimes they're very much in line with, with God's order and creation. And they are part of God's common grace towards us in general. But the primary focus of our hearts isn't to be upon them, rather our duty towards God, which is a duty of faith, faith that leads to devotion expressed through our worship of him alone, faith expressed through grateful living according to his commands through the power of the Holy Spirit. But because the kingdom of this world wants to overthrow Christ's kingdom, it will continually demand more of us and more of us and more tribute than what it's worth. And we're so tempted to give it that. You see, the question the Pharisees and the Herodians was really asking of Jesus was a question of loyalty, of kingship. Who is your king? Is it God through Christ, the king? Or is it Caesar? Or is it the world? Which king do you serve? So by paying the tax, you either showed your devotion... The Pharisees thought the God of their, their understanding, which wasn't the God of the Scriptures, or you show your devotion to Caesar, which was the interest of the Herodians. But Jesus, of course, will not be caught in this trap. It's funny, he, he's, after all, the king. He is Emmanuel, God with us, the second person of the Trinity, God Almighty. And because of that, he easily overcomes their trap. You see, the kingdom of Christ always overcomes the kingdom of the world. And he answers them with the wisdom of heaven. And we come to his incredible answer now. He sees right through the trap, right through the malice, the evil, the wickedness that they intended against him. As we read in verse 18, and he calls their bluff. He he says, well, why are you putting me to the test? And then he uses that term, hypocrites. He calls them exactly what they were. Remember, they had acted like they respected him. They said, you're true. You're a true teacher of the things of God. So so tell us what you think. But of course, they didn't mean what they said. A hypocrite is one who pretends to be what they are not. They were pretending to be his disciples so that they might destroy him. The kingdoms of this world will often result to flattery and an effort to disguise their malice towards God, 
towards his kingdom. Error will often try to cloak itself with just enough truth so as to deceive us. So Jesus then says to them, bring me a coin. Show me a coin that you use for this poll tax. You see, because the Jewish people, the general population, felt that the the coin itself was a violation of the second commandment, they didn't like to carry it on them regularly. They only carried it, or at least they were only supposed to carry it, when it was time to pay the tax. It was a special coin just for that tax. So Jesus says, show it to me. And the interesting thing is, somebody in that crowd has one on their person there in the temple. And so they produce the coin, and Jesus takes it, and he holds it up, and he says, whose likeness and inscription is on this? It's very clear. Everybody knows that's the emperor. And so they reply, Caesar. And then Jesus gives us his famous reply. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Render here is an interesting word. Um, He's using a different verb in the Greek than, than was used when the Pharisees and Herodians asked the question. They asked the question, will you give kind of as a gift, this, this tax to the emperor. Jesus uses a word that has the idea of actually paying back a due, paying what is owed, returning something that was borrowed. It was the right and proper payment for services rendered. That's what he's saying here. He says that this tax, according to Jesus, he's saying it's not arbitrary. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's, what is due him. And by that, Jesus is establishing the fact that, yes, there is human government. There is human authority that exists in this world and to which God's people even live under. That government is a common grace. It's to be a benefit for the good of society. The Bible teaches that. In more than one place, and Jesus is affirming it here. So his disciples then can pay this tax in good conscience. They don't have to worry that they are violating the second commandment. After all, the coin is Caesar's coin. You're just giving it back to him. So just give it to him and go in peace. And they could do that even though those funds were used at times for evil. That evil wasn't upon them. For the money belonged to Caesar, and Caesar would do with it what he wanted, and Caesar ultimately was accountable to God for what he did. There's also a sense here where paying the tax was expected as a a service of of love towards their neighbors. After all, what is the tax used for? Well, it was used for the roads, for commerce, the aqueducts that uh, brought green and and prosperity to this uh, thirsty part of the world. It was used for laws that uh, were good laws and protected people from, from things like murder and theft and brought about some measure of peace in society. You see, God has ordained human government as a restraint against evil in this world. But what about when the government acts in an evil manner? Because they do that. Rome was really good at it. And most governments are. Well, Jesus' second statement here actually answers what we are to do in that situation. 
He says, you are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Do that in good conscience. Do it to the best of your ability. Seek the peace of the city where you live. But when it comes down to it, you are first and foremost a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Render to God the things that are God's. And what does he mean by that? He means yourself. You see, you belong, if you are in Christ, to King Jesus. Remember Jesus' words in verse 20? He asked a question of the, right back at the Pharisees. And this is actually the key to understanding what he says in verse 21. He asked the question, whose image, whose image is stamped on this coin? Who does it belong to? Well, it was stamped with Caesar's image. The coin is earthly. It belongs to Caesar. But the things of God belong to God. What image are you stamped with as a human? You are stamped with the image of God. You see, we are created in his very image. We belong to him. And that is especially true of believers, of Christians. If you are united to Christ by faith, you have been marked, you have been sealed, you have been stamped with his special image. You are called in the scriptures a people of his own possession. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9, but you, speaking to Christians, to believers, he says, you are a chosen race, an elected race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And why? Why are Christians, why are God's people marked as his own possession? He tells us that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, you are rendering back to God the things that are God's. You are proclaiming his excellency that he is the king of all the earth. You are worshiping him. You are giving him what he is due. It's interesting also in God's eternal wisdom that he's given his people a sign and a seal, and more than one actually, that mark them as children of his covenant, children that belong to him. In the Old Testament administration of the covenant of grace, that sign and seal was circumcision. It marked a child as belonging to God's covenant people, God's people of promise. And now that Christ has come and died and risen and ascended and reigning that sign is baptism, as Paul says in Colossians 2. And in baptism, the name of Christ marks everyone who undergoes its waters. They are marked as children of God's grace, and they are then expected to, at some point, confess God's claim upon them, for they've already been marked by him physically. And just like the image of Caesar was upon the coin offered to him, those who have been baptized are now identified as belonging to Christ. And so we render ourselves then, as we've been marked by him, through faith, back to him in worship. In fact, that sealing, that stamping, that marking, it continues with the Lord's Supper. Because we come again and again to Christ Jesus, our King, through faith, acknowledging as we come to that table, His claim upon us. We are His. 
It also continues through the preaching of God's word. Because it is through the proclamation of his word that he continues to write the gospel upon our hearts, thus making us his own. And so then we see through our worship, through word and sacrament, we render to God the things that are God's. We give to him ourselves. That's why the scriptures talk about our worship as a sacrifice of praise, of giving ourselves to God, giving him what he is due, what he is owed, what belongs to him in the first place as our creator. And that's our primary duty as Christians. The kingdoms of the world, they will demand more of us than what they actually deserve and what they are actually due. They demand this kind of devotion that we are called to give God. But if you are Christ, then follow his words, seek first his kingdom, render to God what is God's and to Caesar what is Caesar's. And brothers and sisters, that is the invigorating freedom of the gospel. You see, the gospel has made you free to glorify God, to worship him, to give him what he deserves, but also to love your neighbor, also to seek the good of the city in which you dwell by giving it that which bears its name, not in worship, but because you love others and you want to see God's grace worked into their lives as well. Now, Jesus, through his answer, completely overcomes the Pharisees and the Herodians. We're told they they marvel, they're astonished. They are just left speechless. They cannot respond. Jesus has overcome the kingdom of the world once again, which reminds us that he always, through his kingdom, overcomes the kingdom of the world through his death and resurrection. And he is now seated and he is reigning as king over all the kingdoms of the earth. We already then live under the freedom of his rule. And so we can give to God what is his without fear. We can come before him in worship and enjoy the blessings of his presence. Because we are free in Christ, we're also free then to love others, to serve our neighbors, as Christ calls us to. No, we don't have to give them more than what they demand of us. We're liberated from that. There's freedom in the name of Jesus. But we can give them honor and respect. Why? So that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of the darkness and into his marvelous life. That is life-giving freedom. That is what people want. That's what will bring us ultimately to the peace and joy that is promised when Christ returns. And so let us honor the authorities that God ordains in our lives as much as we are able, but let us not give them more than they deserve. Let us give our worship the highest honor, the highest glory to our King, Jesus Christ. Let us live for the glory of our true King. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that Christ is a true king, that he is good and he is loving, that he receives us to his side 
simply when we come to him in faith and humble repentance, relying upon his grace towards us that he demonstrated through the cross, conquering sin, canceling out the accusation of the law that stood against us so that we might be declared righteous in your sight. And for that, Lord, we as your people that have been called by your sovereign grace are marked with the name of Jesus. And nothing can erase that name from us, Father. For we are yours for all eternity. Help us then to live with that mark that is upon us, that image that we bear as your children and as citizens of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.